you and I together are going to see what is in the old tomb. We're going to shut the door behind us. And right now, all 700 years of the history of this castle comes off in the view as we stand here in almost utter darkness, scraping our feet to watch our way. And we actually see nothing as yet, as our eyes have not become accustomed to the darkness, as this little flashlight does not throw out very much light. If the monster were in here, if such fable be true, he could be right next to us. We have knocked over something here that... Oh. Excuse me just one second, but what... Seems like this is some type of a... Some type of a mache, maybe something that... Oh, when that fell, ladies and gentlemen, you can imagine what ran through our mind. It seemed like some type of a... Trying to kick it with our foot, something maybe that looks like a church window that may have been used in a burial service or something and we're bending over to try to see it. Thank goodness it isn't, we can report it. It isn't alive or anything near being alive. We're shining our light up on the wall as we heard something. but we, our light is fading and it's on something that looks like a statue. Yes, it is just a statue, but a, an ungodly statue where we're kicking at a chain. It, we're going to try to, this is ridiculous, ladies and gentlemen. We are scared because of what fell down on the floor here, but we're going to go up and examine this statue right now. It is a horrible looking statue, much like the monster, perhaps something put here years ago, maybe the original mold. It is very eerie to say the least as this misty moon is coming through the window, but we don't believe in these things and we're going to walk up and touch this to see perhaps what it could be made of. It maybe of wax or plaster. No, it, it couldn't. It, it seemed to move as we came up upon it. No, this is ridiculous. Not wax. I'm getting out of here. Please, God, no. Oh. Help, help, please, help. Please. Can't you hear? Can't you hear me out there?
When I was around eight years old, I remember I was laying in my bed in my room alone, and I couldn't fall asleep, and I was just staring at the ceiling, and the moonlight was coming in, and suddenly I just got this very weird sense that something was off, and I also kind of, I, I saw something out of the corner of my eye, and I, I remember I just slowly turned my head to the right, and there was this thing in my room. And for a moment, I was just paralyzed. I couldn't, I couldn't move. I just stared at it. And <laughs> finally, like some rational part took over my brain and was just like, you need to get out right now. And I just, in that moment, I just threw myself out of the bed and ran out the door of my bedroom and into the hallway. And I ran down all the stairs my, uh, my mom was in the living room, and she was at the table with some papers and a calculator. She was probably doing in taxes or something. And uh, I just burst into the room, and I said, Mom, 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 there is a ghost in my room. I, I can't go back in my room. There's, there's something terrible there. And she looked at me, and, you know, she was used to me coming downstairs all the time. You know, ever since I'd gotten my own room, I was seeing things in shadows and stuff like that. Um, but I knew this was different and, uh, she, she didn't. And she just said, Adrian, I can't possibly deal with this right now. You need to go back up to bed. And I said, no, no, mom, this, this is real. There's, there's something in my room right now. And, uh, she was like, no, go back to bed. You know, I, I don't have time. She said, take the cat. And uh, our cat was a, it was a pretty big cat. When, whenever I held him stretched out, he, uh, he was about half my height and a very large, fat cat. He tended to bite if you annoyed him for too long. But so that was, that struck me as really the only option. And, uh, you know, around that age, you don't really think to contradict your parents. It's just like, oh, wow, I have to go back into that room. All right, so uh, I went and I, I grabbed the cat. I literally you know, dragged him up the stairs. He's this huge cat. I'm this little girl. Back up this dark staircase and back into my room. And uh, it's still there. It's on the wall. It was... It, it consisted mostly of this kind of eerie, dim light... And it looked like, you know, it looked like a skeleton. It had these deep, dark holes for eyes. And these kind of like starched, short, sticking up hairs on its head. And um, I could see all of the uh, like cracks in its teeth. And it had these long, spindling arms. And these fingers dangling off of them. <laughs> it was right... It was right on the wall of my bed. I stared at it, held the cat in my arms, and um, I put I put Willie on the bed, and uh, I crawled under the covers and closed my eyes, and I just grabbed my cat <laughs> and laid there and waited to fall asleep, and I didn't look back at the wall again.
I dug a hole just just deep enough to put the box in and with a couple inches of soil on top of it and I covered him up and uh, my wife came out later that afternoon and we had roses in our garden and she cut a rose and set it right on top of his grave. And we said, well, Ed, you had a good life. You were kind of a nasty cat, but you were our cat. Well, over the next week, strange things started to happen. First, he would always, in the winter, we live in Minnesota, and it would get cold, and Ed would come to this window by the TV, and he would appear at the window, and when he appeared at the window, that meant he wanted to come in. So within the first week, Ed appeared at the window. And, and my wife and I both saw him. It had to be a neighborhood cat. It had to be a, a cat that looked like Ed, but was not Ed, and was maybe coming to look for Ed, to play with Ed. And so we just, you know, we wrote that off as well. That's what a weird coincidence. There's another cat in the neighborhood that looks just like Ed. But then Ed started appearing in the house. He got into the habit his last years of drinking a lot of water, and the only place he would drink water would be in the bathtub, out of the bathtub faucet. And so for the next couple of days, whenever my wife and I would go into a bathroom, out of the corner of eye, we would see Ed sitting in the bathtub, as he often would do, waiting for us to turn on the faucet so he could drink water. Then he wasn't there, and of course, of course he wasn't there. And we had, we talked about it, and it was happening to both of us, and we just said, well, you know, that's just one of those things where, you know, after all these years, you just always expect to see him. So, of course, we still think he's there, but that's that really wasn't him, and we're just, it's just us. But then we started hearing the sounds. There were two doors, one at the top and one at the bottom of the stairs, uh, and they would creak. And so for years, you could be watching TV or not see him, and, and we would hear a little creak. And that would be Ed with taking his paw and opening the lower level door. And then, of course, it would only take him a few seconds to walk up the stairs. And then you'd always hear a muff, more muffled creak. And that would be him opening the upper door. Well... We started, we'd be watching TV in the evening, and you, you, we'd hear these creaks, and they were exactly, it, it even got to be a joke. We would say, well, there's Ed going upstairs, and sure enough, you know, a couple seconds later, there'd be the creak up at the upstairs. But we, we again, just assumed some, you know, a nice scientific rational reason for it, that, oh, it was a, a draft in the house or something. And, but then, uh, late at night, uh, it, it was very irritating. In the last years of his life, Ed would sit below our windows during the summer, particularly when the windows are open, and he would have a very distinct, horrible meow. It was just, and it was just, it was like a cross between a cat's meow and a baby being stepped on. It was, it was very distinct. There was no question about what it sounded like. It was unlike any cat I'd ever owned, and it was not pleasant. And since he had died or been put to sleep in the, in the fall, it was it was October. It was uh, about one week after he had passed away, and all these weird things had been going on, and we just assumed that this was about our grief and not about him. We went to bed. I was awake. It was 2 or 3 in the morning, and I was awake, just laying in bed, 
and and wide awake. And unbeknownst to me, my wife was awake, but each one of us thought the other one was asleep. And I was laying there, perfectly still, quiet night, and the most distinct meow. And without thinking, without hesitating, but not believing that my wife was awake, I merely whispered, Did you hear that? And without hesitating a, a beat, my, my wife, who was awake, and but I didn't know it, said, Do you mean Ed? <laughs> From a narrative perspective, the, one of the most interesting things about ghost stories is the way that they relate to the 19th century genre of the detective story. And in many ways, the ghost story is the opposite of a detective story. A detective begins with facts, some of them being mysterious, right, and slowly, rationally, adds them up and figures out the solution to the puzzle. And so the end of the detective story is a solution. It's something that satisfactorily, intellectually brings all those things together. Now the ghost story begins with whodunit, right? We already know that there was a crime committed and the ghost in question was either the victim of the crime or was the perpetrator of the crime that keeps repeating it, either seeking uh, repetition of the crime or some sort of retribution. The solution of a ghost story is the chill factor moment. Ooh! Right? When something happens that, you, that feels uncanny, you can't quite make sense of it, no matter how many times you go back over it. And even if you can try and construct something intellectual, that's always afterwards, right? The point of the ghost story is not an intellectual point at all. The point is, ooh. And storytellers, even smarty pants academic storytellers, have begun using the model of the ghost story as a way of speaking to the things that we definitely non-cognitively know and sense about the world that we can't explain rationally. And they, the ghost story seeks a way to keep closure from happening, to keep something suspended. Right? Even when a ghost story is done, if it's good, then it still leaves you with a sense of, ooh, something might not be quite so right with the world. Something might still be a little bit off. If it doesn't do that, it's not very satisfying as a ghost story. But the end of a, of a good ghost story still leaves you kind of, hmm, kind of wondering. I bought the house from my parents when they moved to Florida. They were given the home by my grandparents, my mom's mom and dad. It had been in the family a long time. The pantry door squeaked. It was always a bit of a mystery because no amount of oil or grease would make it go away. 
Oh, maybe for an afternoon, but it would return by the night again. We tried everything. Crisco, axle grease, motor oil, hemp, vegetable, mineral oil, brill cream, even. Always the same result. Before bedtime, help me was back. I say help me, because that's what it sounded like. Help me. Help me. It sounded like a real voice, but far, far away. It squeaked when you opened it, it squeaked when you closed it. Help me. Help me. My parents lived with that squeak their whole lives. I remember it from as early as I have memories. My parents brought me home to that house after I was born. My family all knew it was hopeless to solve, but it became an on-again, off-again game. My mom and dad would each rush to best the other. They'd bet on it, even. Dad would do laundry for a week, or mom would mow the lawn for a month. Once, dad took the hinges off and soaked them in Coca-Cola for a week, and then in motor oil for a week, and they put them back on. By the next morning, the squeak returned. My mom tried spraying the hinges every day with WD-40, right before she opened it, and right before she closed it. After two cans, she gave up. Then they'd forget all about the challenge for months or years. They started it back up when Dad discovered graphite powder or Mom saw an infomercial for CLM. Finally, they retired, moved to Florida, and sold the house to me. My wife Yvonne and I went after the problem with gusto. I knew better, but she was my new bride, and I wanted her to be happy. My parents and I had been calling the cupboard, Help me, for years. Where's the tinfoil? Someone would ask me. Help me. Where's the spare bottle of ketchup? Help me. I had gotten used to the squeak. It was part of the family. Yvonne said I had to do the laundry for the week if she found the solution first. We tried all the normal methods, oil, Crisco, grease. She thought petroleum jelly would work, and one time tried KY jelly. We asked at antique shops to see if they had similar hinges. We wanted to replace them, but we loved the way they looked. No one had ever seen such a design, long fingers of metal stretching around the doors if a bony hand were holding it, turning at the wrist. They'd offer to buy them from us if we wanted, though, and for a goodly sum. Eventually we did. Yvonne tired of help me. It was creepy, she said, like a voice we will regret not helping. We bought modern hinges and rehung the old oak pantry door from them. Help me was back by supper. The next day we ordered a new door. It was the weight of the door, my father assured me over a phone call from Florida. The weight of the door caused a squeak, so replace it. We measured the pantry entrance, and I had a woodcutter cut a new door out of cherry. It was a beautiful door, and Yvonne gasped when she saw it. The price we were paid for the antique hinges covered the cost of the new door, and we put it up, confident of finally solving the problem. My mother said we'd copped out, that the squeak was a challenge. I went to bed wondering if I'd missed the sound. I prayed to God that night to thank him for making my life so easy that I could miss the sound of my pantry door squeaking. By morning, it was back. Help me. Yvonne began to get nervous. It was it was too weird, she said. It was only a squeak, I said. No, it's a cry for help, she said. I laughed and told her it was not a cry for help. But maybe you thinking it was a cry for help is a cry for help. She demanded we bring in a contractor to see if we could shore up the door frame. It was the heavy door moving the wood on the frame around it. Didn't work. The stairs above? No. The floor? The contractor tapped around and said... Hey, it is the floor. He pulled up a couple of boards, and right in the center of the pantry was a hole. He shined his flashlight down and said, Hey, there's another hole. I went and got my ladder because the contractor didn't have his with him. 
We shoved it down the hole, and we both climbed in, the contractor and me. Yvonne wouldn't go near it. She said she didn't want to know what was down there, in the help-me hole. The first room, the contractor called it a chamber, was empty, circular, and made of stone. The walls were stone, the floor was stone, stone like a medieval dungeon, rough and blocky. There were no corners, and it reminded me of a medieval turret. Seeing one room was enough for me. I went up the ladder and called my dad, who said he knew nothing about it. Then he cut short our conversation and said he had a tea time to make. The contractor continued into the next soul, and it turns out into another. There were three chambers in all, the first of stone, the second of polished inlaid stone, and the third and lowest, wood. Big old chunks of timber, said the contractor, beams across the top, planks at the bottom, thick sanded and worn with use. He tried to dig up the floor of the third chamber, but couldn't find an easy way to pry up the boards and didn't want to damage the beautiful woodworking. In this third chamber, he said, there were scratches on the wall, scratches everywhere, scratches that formed words, but not words he'd seen before. He described it all to me over a coke after he came out of the hole, but he had this slightly deranged look about him. When I invited him to go back down with a stronger light, he said he had to be going and walked out to his truck and drove away. He left behind his bucket of tools and never returned for them. After that day, Help Me was joined by knocking. It was faint at first. By the time I understood that I was hearing knocking, I realized it had been going on for a long time. But it had been so faint that it didn't break all the way into my conscious mind. The knocking grew louder, and we named it Knock Knock. We had Help Me and Knock Knock living with us. We made up jokes during the day, but at night we'd be frightened, sometimes thinking, what if it's not the furnace? At night, knock-knock didn't seem much like a joke at all. The knocking pushed my curiosity over my fear. My wife thought we should pour a truckload of cement down the hole and be done, but I wanted to visit that third chamber. It took more courage than I had, so we invited a bunch of friends over for a party, and I went down. I wanted to have a house full of fun-loving guests because it seemed like nothing bad happens to housefuls of people having fun. I found what the contractor had found and something he had not. I found a book. I was in the third chamber, inspecting the writing on the wall. It was very quiet, sixty or seventy feet below my house. I couldn't hear the minor party going on overhead. I could hear my own breathing, and my headlamp hummed. I startled several times at the sound of my own feet shuffling on the floor. It was entrancing. Mostly the writing the contractor described were scratches, etches deep into the wood, and some shallower ones on top, trying to rub out the deep scars. The deeper scratches danced eerily to the right and left of me, the light of my headlamp casting shadows that moved when I moved. Sometimes the scratches came together in strange forms. None were English words, but they were beautifully spelled. I looked around for a utensil, something to scratch with, a stick, a bone, a chip of rock. I looked down, and at my feet I found a book. I was nearly standing on it. I had not missed it before. I'm not stupid. There was no book in there when I first arrived. I had dropped off the ladder and inspected the walls, ceiling, and floor. I didn't want to be surprised by something. A spider, a rat, or... It was when I yelled up to my wife and party guests that I found a book that the knocking resumed, and with vim. It came from just on the other side of the wall, right next to me. I stuffed the book into my waistband and frantically set to climb up the ladder to the second chamber. The knocking chased. 
When I got to the second chamber, the hollow wrapping on wood turned to a vacant tapping on stone. I had just the one ladder. To get to the bottom, you'd drop the ladder down, then climb down, then drop it into the next hole and climb down into it. To get out, you would have to do it in reverse. And it took a long time. Tap, tap, tap. I almost dropped the ladder pulling it out of the third chamber, and it collapsed once as I climbed up into the first chamber. I fell hard and was momentarily pinned against the stone wall. The tapping was in my ear, and I could hear, help me, which I had no intention of doing. Finally, after several more misstarts, I made it to the top, pulled out the ladder hand over hand and at an angle so as to get it out the pantry door but not to scratch the enamel on the refrigerator. I looked around for my friends to tell them what I found, but nobody was around. Glasses and bottles lay scattered like a bomb went off, and the driveway was empty save for two cars that seemed to have collided during the getaway. Their bumpers were stuck together and their cars abandoned by their owners. Even Yvonne was gone. I was anxious to read the book I found, so I sat at the kitchen table and read the first page. I should have stopped there. The book was leather-bound, handwritten, and the paper was thick and rough. There were blotches of some sort of ink on some pages and smears on others. Half of the pages were empty, and only half of those were legible. I thought it might be worth some big money, so the Saturday morning after I finished it, I dropped it into a Ziploc freezer bag and drove down to an antique bookstore to ask them about it. I swear I set it on the passenger seat right next to me. But when I arrived at the store, it was gone. I searched everywhere and finally just went home thinking that maybe I just dropped it on the driveway. When I got home, I searched high and low and finally discovered it on my wife's nightstand, where I'd left her an hour before, sleeping in after a long week. She wasn't there. I looked all over the house, and then in the hole, because I knew what that book said. I called out for her, but heard nothing in return. I dropped the ladder into the first chamber, crawled down, and looked into the second. Nothing. I was too scared to drop into the second or third chamber, so I started back up the ladder. Time to call the police. That's when the phone rang. I was tense, and the sudden ringing startled me. I fell from the ladder and threw to the second hole down into the second chamber. I don't remember picking it up, but I held the book in my hand and clutched it to my chest instead of grabbing with the ladder. The second chamber is about twice my height with polished stone walls too slick and too far apart to climb. The ladder remained above in the first chamber. I could see the light from that chamber, the one with the ladder, just below the hole in the pantry. I hadn't had time to grab my headlamp during the desperate search for my wife. I have already read the book, and I know what it says about the second chamber. And the third chamber, right below me. I can't see into the third chamber. It is too dark. I am fearful of the sounds the book describes. I pray to hear the phone, the doorbell, of my wife returning home. I just want to hear a normal sound. The quiet is quite queer. Every few minutes, I call out, Help me! But my voice sounds distant and tiny, even to me. I rap on the stone, but it's hard to make a sound without a rock or stick. While I was sleeping, someone came and closed the pantry door and dimmed the pantry light. Now it's dark all over, above and below. I hope someone finds this book and reads it. I can't see in the dark. I hope the blood is legible. It's hard to write in blood.
You've been listening to Love and Radio. The show is conceived and produced by Nick Vanderkolk, that's me, and Adrian Mathewitz. The reporter you heard at the beginning of the show is named Carl Nelson, who was working for the American Forces Network. He was exploring, this is not a joke, the Frankenstein family crypt in Darmstadt, Germany, in 1952. His producers were playing a prank on him, and they kept it up until he fainted from the fear. The guy discussing ghost stories was David Terry of UNC Chapel Hill. Music and editing for that piece was by Michael Kraskin of CatalogOfShips.com. And the final story in this week's episode was called The Book, written and performed by Hans Anderson. Don't forget to visit our website. It's loveandradio.org.